Hey everybody, this is the House of Shade, and today's episode is co-hosted by Red Eye Bear and Crypto Kemp. We're joined by Erdeman, founder of Agents of the Roundtable and a core secret education contributor. In today's episode, we dive into privacy and encryption. First, we discuss transactional versus computational privacy. Then we learn about the different types of encryption methods, define trusted versus non-trusted setups, and finally, we break down trusted execution environments, ZK proofs, and more. Before we jump right in and join Red Eye Bear and Crypto Chem, I wanted to talk about the Shade Warrior program. Shade Warriors are only as strong as the warriors standing next to them. You can join the warrior ranks and help Shade Protocol bring privacy to DeFi. By completing missions, you'll earn points, rewards, tokens, and gain exclusive access as you move up the ranks. If you're ready to earn your shield, click the Shade Discord link in the description below for early access. Now let's join Erdeman for our conversation on encryption and privacy. And we're live. Excited to be back here in our studio. I'm Red Eyed Bear, and I'm joined by Crypto Kim uh, with our guest today, Erdeman, here from the Secret Network. Uh, we're here to talk about uh, Secret Network privacy tech and uh, privacy tech within the crypto space in general. So thank you for joining us, Erdeman. Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here. So this is something, this is a topic I'm super passionate about. I know Kim is super passionate about, and obviously you're passionate about with all the, um, with all the things you've been doing within Secret Network. Um, before we really start getting into the, to the heart of this conversation, I want to be able to give you a chance to talk about um, some of your educational or professional background and, and what you've done in the network uh, up until this point. Yeah, so... I'm Erteman or Gijs. Uh, I am a master's in physics, actually in real life, but um, yeah, not doing a lot with that at the moment because I'm doing both developer documentation and user um, education for the secret network. So I create content which explains hopefully some of the technology or other concepts, and I help people feedback their content or write documentation for certain stuff. And besides that, I'm just here talking on Twitter and uh, getting stuff done, uh, hoping to see if I can push some people to do certain things or uh, otherwise uh, just um, join the conversation at least because there is always something to discuss or, or change. Yep, I mean, that's that's really how my start into the network, uh, how, how my involvement in the network started is I just really wanted to start being a part of these conversations. Uh, I'm someone who really enjoys learning new things, especially complex things. Uh, I think we've talked about this in private before, Erdman, but my my background is in physics as well, physics and chemistry. So just from the standpoint of like, I like knowing why things work the way they work, how things uh, work. Um, so like, the path that I've taken to where I'm at now seems to be fairly similar to the the path that you're taking, not necessarily our progress so far, but like the reasons we were interested in doing these things. Um, so that's really cool to hear that there are other people out there that are very, uh, very driven to help share their expertise and knowledge with individuals who are excited and enticed by the learning opportunities present here. And especially for something like Secret Network, where we've got these uh, private by default smart contracts, it's there's like this weird uh, 
aspect of this mysticism or like this uh, obscurity and privacy. They've got all these different attributes associated with them, connotations associated with those words. Um, and so naturally, I think this piques a lot of people's curiosity. So I'm hoping we're going to cover some information today that uh, will really pique people's interest in not only the privacy narrative, but also what Secret Network has to offer as well. Um, interestingly enough, I was doing some uh, background research before um, we hopped on this episode, looking at total number of uh, crypto assets out there uh, above a particular market cap range, just to give them some like validity behind the project um, relative to the to um, privacy projects, whether it be a protocol, asset, uh, network um, that have those same sort of standards. And rough calculation, only about three and a half percent of total crypto projects or assets are privacy oriented, which to me screams that this privacy narrative is still considered like a niche or it's still considered like this up and coming narrative because obviously it has not reached mainstream. There are a few, there are a few privacy projects that people have heard of, um, most likely Monero, most likely being the, the most common one, but there's still a lot of runway with the privacy narrative, with the privacy technology that's being implemented within these networks and protocols. Um, and so I'm really excited to get to cover uh, the technology that is being utilized in these privacy networks for this episode to um, hopefully share this, uh, share this narrative with other people and get people more interested. Um, so, before we uh, before we start getting into like super de uh, detailed technicals, um, can you Erdemann maybe just talk about the difference between the two main types of uh, privacy projects, um, mainly being computational uh, privacy versus transactional privacy? Because I feel like a lot of times people conflate the two. Yeah, of course. Um, first, maybe. I'm uh, although I did follow a lot of courses in computer science and I'm a data science uh, data scientist normally. I didn't do a lot with encryption, so it's just more of my passion how I got into following all these different projects and understanding their technology. But if you really want the full deep dives, then make sure to go ahead to the white papers of specific projects or just Google around because I cannot be your your sole source of info. But um, for specifically computational and transactional privacy, um, it, it's, it's uh, let's put it like this. You can either send someone some money uh, and you can do it without them knowing what how much money you have besides what you sent, uh, without the other person knowing anything extra about you and without any other observer being able to infer what the balance was of the transaction or who the two parties were that were transacting something. And that is known as transactional privacy. And uh, I guess it's the most known form of cryptocurrency privacy because in the end, the most use cases within the blockchain space are just still transferring tokens, uh, whether this is on Bitcoin or even on Ethereum, if you're swapping and stuff, it's still very similar to just sending something or doing something with a monetary amount of, of assets, let's put it like that. And then there's a second form, which basically is, let's say we can decentralize 
uh, we have a decentralized network and this network can do computations and normally these computations would be public so on ethereum for example i can see which that position you took or which character you minted in a game or when you decided to take a certain uh, step in chess or in whatever um, but if you would build that on a computational privacy network then nobody would be able to infer what exactly happened so you can do yeah you can do any computational needs uh, like people call it generalized compute which just means that anything you can do in your computer you could in theory do it on a web3 application based thing but then it's it has private metadata or private applications and the, those are the two different projects and i guess for computational privacy there are less projects who really have generalized compute in comparison to projects that do offer transactional privacy because the la the former so computational privacy is just quite hard to create on a blockchain and, and I think that's something that a lot of people uh, misconstrue is that there is a big difference between some projects that are looking to do transactional type privacy versus computational, because there is a clear um, limitation to what you can do with computational type privacy uh, in terms of scalability and, and speed that a transactional type privacy may not have, correct? I mean... A computational privacy network doesn't have to be built around also having transactional privacy um, because often you interact with a smart contract instead of interacting with uh, another user so it's less problematic if the smart contract infers any information from you while if you are on a transactional privacy network it's very important that the other party you are transacting with doesn't infer any information from you and then of course um, the scalability concerns are also completely different because on a, if you want to create something like Ripple, but then private, so you want to send like millions of transactions over the entire world within, within a few seconds, um, then that's maybe, uh, that's a completely different use case basically than right. saying, okay, I need to compute the entire game state on chain. Um, and it just requires a, a, a different set of encryption standards or protocols to use so yeah it's very important for the i guess projects specifically focused on doing either one or the other right and so I, there are not a lot of projects who say they aim to achieve both right and, and that makes sense because obviously with with computational privacy there's only you don't necessarily need to have computation like you're mentioning with just sending a private transaction of currency back and forth so it's kind of inefficient to actually use a computational type encryption when you really don't need that level uh, of computation done. So you could do it on a, you know, a transactional type chain, and that is actually probably more beneficial to you. So that's something I think a lot of people struggle with is, you know, there's, there's these protocols like secret, which are great and do a lot of great things, but it might not be the best um, protocol for what you're trying to do. If you're trying to do something very simple, like send money to another user. But I also yeah. think, uh, Highlighting kind of what uh, Erdemann was talking about, the differences between the functionalities, it seems like to me transactional privacy is a, is a niche, like a true niche where it does exactly what it's supposed to do and nothing more. But with computational, uh, with, with a private computation network or platform, the possibilities are kind of endless. You know, it's just what applications potentially could leverage privacy. 
And on Secret Network, we're seeing a lot of real world applications and use cases starting to pop up that are leveraging this programmable privacy that Secret offers. Um, I think two of the most notable ones would be Alter and uh, Jackal right now um, that are utilizing this programmable privacy, this uh, private compute to be able to provide these real world uh, services outside of just transacting. Uh, yeah, out, outside of just transacting. So that's why that's personally what kind of draw me into secret was because I was able to when I well, when I first got into secret, uh, the development uh, for all these various applications was really starting to pick up. And so I got to see the beginning of uh, alter launch, uh, the beginning of hearing about Jackal, hearing about data vault, hearing about some of these other projects that are still kind of in their infancy building that are not necessarily public yet, but there is a, there are a lot of use cases that are emerging um, that are leveraging these uh, private computational platforms and networks. And personally, I think, I think uh, the, the private computation is going to play a much bigger role in this privacy narrative uh, in the future rather than transactional privacy. Yes, everyone, it, it would be great if everyone's finances were kept private by default. You could, I can show you, uh, you know, my receipts or uh, I could give you some sort of audit of my transactions if I want to. But that, that really only makes up a tiny portion of my activity on the internet or my activity with other projects. And so um, trying to think more forward uh, into the future, the, these privacy or these private computation platforms pique my interest the most because I feel like that's where we're going to see the most use cases emerge. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to, to see what's coming out in the future. And then also seeing what privacy tech actually changes along the way, because, you know, the, the different types of, uh, cryptographic technology that is implemented in a lot of these networks has been changing over time. Uh, I would say for the most part, um, the developments have increased throughput, the speed, the security of these computations. And so um, maybe we can kind of get into uh, what technology is actually leveraged to be able to provide some of these, um, this privacy preservation for various uh, computation and transactional uh, projects. Yeah, um, to, to quickly get back to your like, uh to the point you made like what is more interesting i think it also very a lot a lot of it comes down to what is new right i mean we already have monero and uh, an application of ck snarks for privacy ccash and other solutions who solve for transactional privacy so inherently people are looking um yeah for the computational parts because it's similar in public layer ones where we already have bitcoin why do we need everything anything else so every other protocol is basically focusing on not creating another transaction coin, but creating something that does computations, but then in a specific way. Yep, agreed. So you mentioned uh, ZK Snarks there. Um, that's one of the more popular, like uh, cryptographic uh, technologies that a lot of new projects are trying to utilize to provide some of this uh, privacy for their various uh, products. Um, there are a few other like semi-popular or just a more well-known um, privacy technology out there. Uh, I know 
like you said, Zcash uses uh, ZK Snarks. Monero uses a combination of ring signatures and stealth addresses, um, secret network, and and most of the other private computation platforms leverage trusted execution environments. Um, and there's there's a few other ones that are starting to gain some traction, like multi-party computation and um, homomorphic encryption, but I do want to take uh, a brief minute here and kind of highlight just some some very surface level details about these different types of um, cryptographic uh, technology. That way, if any if any of this piques uh, a listener's interest, they can go and do a little bit more due diligence on some of these things. Um, yeah, should, so I, guess should I tackle it or? Uh, I'm sorry, say that again. Should I tackle that or? Uh... Yeah, I mean, I think you're probably the, the best uh, suited to speak on this. So if you could yeah. just give us a real uh, high-level description of what um, a trusted execution environment um, yeah. is, and then we can kind of move on to snarks and then uh, homomorphic encryption. Yeah, so uh, maybe first some general techniques or things uh if you're talking about encrypting something you're basically saying okay hey i have original text they often called plain text and i'm going to encode it so i'm going to change something about it that it becomes ciphertext and then if someone gets the ciphertext they are not able to decipher so they're not able to see what the original text was so if you send someone an encrypted an encrypted message they're only able to see this if they have the password or key to this message and then there are several techniques who use all kinds of different encryption techniques or curves or whatever to create uh, a situation where you can show something show something to someone uh, without them having the full picture or only sharing something without someone else knowing it or uh, all forms of privacy. So you said first go over TEE. So yeah. I guess I'll start with that. Um, trusted execution environments are... Um, basically a separate hardware component inside your CPU. So inside of your computer, there is a processor and this processor not only has a public compartment, let's put it like that, but it also has a private compartment. And this private compartment is completely separated from the public compartment. So you're able to run your OS. So for example, Windows or Mac or Linux on the public compartment and then this OS has no way of integrating with the uh, private compartment. And uh, protocols may use this to, for example, send encrypted data inside of the SDX. So nobody can see what is happening. Then you send it inside the SDX, inside the, sorry, inside the TEE. Uh, and then the inside the TEE, you could decrypt the information and then no one has access to it, not even the person who's running the machine. And then they can do computations over it and uh, send it out again as an encrypted state. So a TE basically acts as a black box, but it's the way you use this black box which could potentially enable privacy for blockchain uh, blockchain applications. Yeah. And then I quickly mentioned SGX. SGX is the um, it's called Software Cards Extension, which is uh, basically the Intel version. Intel is a company, the Intel product of a TE, which yeah, it runs specific standards and specific protocol, but it's a TE by nature. It just has a specific other name. Yeah. Okay. So SGX is just a specific, almost like brand name version of a T. Trust yeah. You also have a a AMD. I think it's called SEV. 
So yeah. Yeah. basically the same thing, but then it's their tea. And of course they have a completely different design, but that's way too complicated for now to go over. It's also not not really important for this that's concept, I guess. Totally fair. And I guess maybe this is something we could probably address now early before we get into like kind of the rest of these types of encryption uh, methods, but kind of the difference between like secure and trusted, because obviously you have your trusted execution environment, um, but what, that's a little bit different than what we'd say is a secure cryptographic computation. Um, I guess to go over that, so um, in general, what you're describing here is that it's it's the trusted versus non-trusted setup, right? And you have that in many different applications. You have that within zero knowledge, you have that within encryption, you have that yeah. within everything basically where you either have to trust something or someone or hardware or software to do something or it's completely known to be secure from the moment you start. So it's either a software program which runs from A to B and uh, it's 100% encrypted all the way through and you're 100% sure that it's private or you're potentially decrypting information somewhere within a hardware device and then you have to trust that this hardware device doesn't have any um, leakage or breakage or whatever. Um, but even then, if you're doing secure, um, like you're, you're saying, secure encryption or secure uh, whatever, there's still probability that comes in because a lot of encryption mechanisms rely on probability. Um, and then there is still implementation risk. Like, I mean, someone has to develop the package they are going to use to create these encryption schemes and they make mistakes as well. So um, there are a lot of saying something is completely trustless is quite a, a, a heavy, heavy statement, but yeah. yeah, there are less trusted setups than that there are. Like there is a degree of how much things you have to trust for a setup to work. And I guess TES belongs in the compartment of hardware trusted setup. So you're trusting yeah. a specific piece of hardware to work in its intended way. Yeah. It's materially trustless. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I, when Kim was talking about that, it made me think of like the role that within Secret Network, um, Secret Network is leveraging uh, various types of encryption methods and then also leveraging these trusted execution environments. And from the way I was thinking about it, thinking about how uh, Secret Network is able to provide that secure and trusted computation, the trust part comes from, you know, your your hardware, um, like hardware authentication, making sure you have good uh, installation uh, practices, being able to, um, it's like general trust associated with uh, the, the hardware. And then your, the security comes from the crypt cryptography that is utilized in conjunction with the trusted execution environment. Um, yeah. I think you briefly mentioned uh, at the beginning that Secret network, secret network uh, leverages various uh, encryption uh, methodologies to be able to provide that uh, secure computation. Yeah, I mean, we can go over that, but I don't know if you want to cover the cover all the methods first. But yeah, maybe to quickly mention, just uh, we talked about encryption, we talked about TEs, but maybe we should quickly go over like what types of encryption do you have, or mm -hmm. how do you create a key, or what even is a key, like. There, are, what you would do in encryption is you generate a key. That's often the first thing that happens. And a key is basically a passphrase. 
and in general this passphrase could be something you typed in but it would of course be way more secure if you can generate a key from like either pseudo random thing or multiple components you have to put in to generate a key because then you can generate the same key again uh, later on if it's deterministic or you could um, share the key without someone knowing what the input was like there, there are ways there are reasons why you would want to generate something to be the secret that uses the encryption instead of it just being something you choose so this key basically is like a consider it like a pin code and if you have this pin code then you get access to the encrypted information and this key is also used to encrypt the information and then you have two different key generation schemes basically there's one where you only have a public key so this is uh, or actually you only have a private key sorry i'm saying it wrong. you only have a key which you should keep to yourself because as soon as you share the key everyone gets access that's called symmetric encryption and there's also a system where you have two keys you have both a public and a private key and this is called asymmetric encryption and in that scheme you can give out your public key to someone without them uh, and then with the public key someone can decipher something that has happened but they are not able to encrypt so, so they're only able to decrypt something but they're not able to encrypt something so if you send a public key to someone they may be able to see your message but you are still the only person that is able to encrypt the message because you are the only one who have who is access to the uh, private key uh, so I guess that is um, a thing and then you have to think about deterministic and non-deterministic so there are several encryption schemes and some always yield exactly the same result and some don't always exactly yield exactly the same result and then you have a word that's called pseudo-random which basically means that you generate some sort of randomness or entropy as they call it which is um, let's say you roll a dice from one to six but then it's uh, 1 to 128 or something and from this number you decide to generate a key together with some other things and then you cannot generate this key without knowing exactly the number so this key is generated in a pseudo random way that's how they would say it and then maybe one last thing uh, is called hashing and hashing is where you take a message of an arbitrary size so it could be one kilobyte it could be five gigabytes or whatever and then not that someone wants to hash a five gigabyte file but still um you would then put this through the hash hashing algorithm and it would come out as a constant size item so you if you put in something which is uh, very short it still delivers exactly the same length output uh and this is uh, handy because in encryption and computation it's you need a system where you handle constant data because if someone is able to see the size of your files they may be able to infer what is happening or something like that so hashing is an important step in a lot of encryption schemes and it's basically the most simple version of encryption because there is no key the only thing you're doing is you're scrambling stuff and then putting it in a table so that you can find it later on when using the hash but there is no key to this uh to this password so i guess you have hashing then you have uh private key encryption so symmetric which is one key and then you have public key encryption which has two keys and those are the three three steps i really appreciate you uh breaking that down because for as long as i've been in this network i still have yet to fully understand um 
you know, all of these different encryption methodologies uh, that are utilized to provide this programmable privacy by secret. Um, so that's, I really appreciate you uh, going in depth there. Um, so outside of secret network, I think the most common um, privacy technology that's being leveraged is uh, ZK snarks. Um, could you maybe provide just a little bit of color on what they are and kind of how they're used to be able to provide this privacy? And yes. maybe, yeah. And I don't know if it's worth discussing first off, just generally what a ZK proof is and then yeah. kind of going into yeah. what a snark is versus, you know, maybe some of these other ZKs that offer more privacy. Yeah, so, I was uh, I was planning on that. I think it's important to first narrow down where ZK stands for. You see it everywhere. Um, as zero knowledge proof or CK proof basically um, is a situation where you have a prover and a verifier. So you have something who states something and you have something who wants to make sure that what the person is stating is correct. And then the prover can issue a proof as they go at zero knowledge proof and send this to the verifier. And the verifier is then able to uh, agree that what the prover was stating is correct without actually seeing what uh, what he was stating without getting any other information uh, so um, an example is you would have uh, completed the puzzle and you say okay hey I have completed this puzzle and without someone showing that you have a completed puzzle you want to prove to them that you have completed the puzzle and there are several ways that uh, they go about this. Uh, there is an interactive way where you would say, okay, uh, can you, I give you a challenge. And if you are able to complete this challenge, then um, I am a little bit more closer to thinking that you are right. And if you do this a thousand times or a million times, then you get very close to uh, saying, okay, I'm sure you are correct. So if, for example, you create a challenge where it would be a 50-50 um chance of giving the correct answer if you had no prior knowledge and it would be 100 percent correct if you had prior knowledge then if you do it one time you say okay yeah but you could have just guessed right if you do it twice then you say okay well you're a good guesser and then at five six times okay this is getting a bit scary and then at 20 times you're saying okay i'm quite sure that you know what's going on so that's basically how a, a proof like that would work um and these are not really implemented in blockchain. They're like a good way to explain how something like this would go. But uh, yeah, in blockchain, you often want either finality or you don't want a lot of transactions because you cannot send a million transactions between each other to probability, probabilistically verify that something is correct. So there is a separate um, a second system, which is called non-interactive zero knowledge proofs. And that is a system where you only send the, the the prover creates a proof they send it to the verifier the verifier says okay nice thank you now i know what's happened and that's correct but that also means that it, uh, it it instantly has to be correct so there needs to be enough information for the verifier to to say okay hey i am sure that you did this which is called completeness i am sure that if you give me the correct proof that you actually did what you say you did and then um there's also the other thing, of course, where if it's not true, that if you give me a proof where you're saying that it's true, even though it's not, that I can verify that it's actually not true. 
which is a little bit complicated to think about if when I'm saying it like this, but it just uh, the, the verifier has to know either whether it's true or not, even though you are even when you are lying. Yeah. And then uh, the third, I guess, uh, so that, those are the two types. You have interactive and not interactive. And then the things I just mentioned, you need completeness. You need uh, also a way to verify if it's not correct. And then the third thing is you require uh, that the verifier gains no further knowledge from the completed puzzle, for example, than, that's, uh, than just saying, OK, it's true. They, they only basically get like a zero or one. Either he's correct or he's false, but there is no other information that is given. So a CK snark is a type of a non-interactive proof. You also have bullet proofs, which are used by Monero, and you have uh, CK snarks. I'm not sure if any projects actually use them. And um, I guess the difference Maybe that maybe that's the first thing. A snark stands for. I have to write it, read it out loud because I'm not sure. It's a zero knowledge, succinct, non-interactive argument of knowledge. Okay, mm -hmm. that's it. But um, maybe more importantly, the difference between a snark and a bulletproof is that a bulletproof is non-trusted. So someone is able to create a proof without sharing a certain secret or without trusting a setup, basically. And then a snark is a trusted setup. So there is a, uh, there's a, for example, shared randomness, or it, it's also, it has all to do with the pre-processing of a zero knowledge proof. And it's way too in-depth to go about. And I'm not sure I can quite explain how that exactly works. But the reality is that uh, for a verifier and a prover to both know what is happening in a, zero, uh, in a CK snark, there needs to be some sort of uh, pre-processing and this pre-processing is done in a trusted setup so that for example means that um, multiple nodes come together to create a random seed and this random seed is then used to create a secret and then as soon as they all go offline the secret is kept inside a node somewhere or it, it changes every block so that no one knows what is actually going on but this it was once created and now it will be shared amongst the people who need to compute this zero knowledge snarks and, and maybe you don't have this level of detail and it's not important, but I guess what type of project would, you know, leverage maybe a ZK Bulletproof versus a ZK Snark? Is there anyone you can think of or any types of, I guess, products where one makes more sense than the other? I'm like the, the biggest difference is speed because a trusted setup is a lot faster than um, like why ZK Snarks are called Snarks for the succinct. And the succinct stands for that um, the proofing is very fast. So it's very easy to generate a proof. And the verifying is constant time. Or it's not constant time, but it's very close to constant time. So it's super fast. So uh, I was reading like some benchmarking by a project. And they, for example, said, OK, uh, it takes maybe 50 milliseconds to create a proof. And it, 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 it costs 0 0.2 seconds to verify it. And if it's. 100 times larger, then it maybe takes 600 milliseconds to create a proof and still 0.2 to verify it. So it's really fast because the verifier actually is faster than it would take to hash the input that he is trying to prove. That sounds quite complicated, but that's yeah. the that's the reality. So if you would if you would to hash the puzzle, for example, 
that would take a longer time than it would take for someone to verify that the puzzle is correct. Okay. And is this kind of that difference between having encrypted data doing kind of the work versus having unencrypted doing the work? It has, to, about- it, it has to do with the pre-processing because you have this, this, this shared setup, basically. Uh, someone is able to verify really fast. Uh, Got it. Because you can share like a small secret with like, uh, okay, we both know the secret. And if I ch- change a few numbers and hash it again, then you should be able to check that I changed a few numbers and it's correct. And then you say, oh, hey, I see that you changed these few numbers, so you must be right. Instead yeah. of them having to see like the entire state. And Got it. And then a bulletproof, it is uh, non-trusted, so that is why it's uh, slower. But it's, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if it's more secure. But what the like the, it's not per se more secure. Let's put it like that. But the reality is, with a trusted setup, if is that if the setup is not correct, so if people make mistakes in how they set up the uh, the zk snark environment, and someone ought to see what went on when they set it up then by definition they can create false proofs and as soon as someone can create false proofs then the complete uh, scheme basically falls apart so there is always this one liability that you make sure that you uh, set up this process correctly and there are many ways to do this so it's not really we should not think that it's very easy for a trusted setup like that to break. It's not like someone somewhere in this back room has access to everything. Like there are ways with multi-party computation and other stuff to create like a good setup. But um, the reality is that it's always something that's hanging above your hat. Like it's, it could potentially go wrong. And when you're doing bulletproof, you don't have that. But uh, verification of a bulletproof just takes a lot longer. So proving and verifying just both take a lot longer, but mostly verifying. So, so it's essentially that that trade-off you typically have of you know speed versus security, where it's you know there's always that that slight trade-off for one or the other. So that kind of makes sense from that aspect as well. Yeah, I, I think uh, probably the best example that uh, we've got to talk about today of that trade-off between security and speed is homomorphic encryption. You just get this maximum security, especially with fully homomorphic encryption. And then ultra low speed uh, <laughs> of actually doing this, um, and so if, if you have any information on uh, homomorphic encryption, I'd love to hear that from you. But uh, one of the things that stuck out in my head when reading about this prior is, um, you know, the efficiency of this uh, of these encryption schemes, like doing computations over ciphertext versus doing it over plain text. Uh, it's, I mean, millions uh, of magnitudes of difference in efficiency between uh, these two different computational uh, pathways. Yeah. So there's, I feel like you would have to value security over everything else in order to, at least right now with its current state, to be trying to implement this. But if you have any, uh, if you have any information about homomorphic encryption and maybe like where it's at right now. Um, yeah, so... So if you if you think back to TEEs, it was a way where you could send data to a CPU, they would process something and they would send it out. But inside the CPU, it would be decrypted. So you can do computation over encrypted data. Mm-hmm. You're not really computing over encrypted data, but um, you are able to um, uh, sorry, you're able to decrypt it, do the computation, encrypt it again without anyone seeing it. Yeah. So 
in, in, in reality you're basically doing exactly the thing i just said but you can you you cannot call it your computing over encrypted yeah. data it's much faster. Like the yeah. trust and execution environments, I think, are close to on par with just computing over regular uh, plain. Yeah, type. so encrypting, computing, decrypting, and everything it gives around thirty uh, percent overhead, or at least that's okay. the case on all secrets. So it's like uh, it's not bad. No, it's it, so it's a little bit slower because yeah, you have to encrypt and decrypt and stuff like that. But it's in comparison, it's not uh, it's not a lot slower than just yeah. sending you a message basically. And then uh, zero knowledge proofs is a situation where um, you're not really computing anything. You're just saying, okay, I did this thing and it's correct. So you still have you still need someone to encrypt or or you still need something to do the processing. So, for example, for Monero, the, the the Monero node just has the full decrypted information on the CPU. So, if you don't run your own full node, you are trusting that someone is not saving your transaction data. So, um, but then afterwards, you say, "Okay, hey, I did this transaction, and I can prove it." Mm -hmm. And that's the way that it's it's transformed into the network instead of that the network has to like completely do it. And then when you move to homomorphic encryption, it's basically the, the saying where from A to B, the data is always encrypted and whatever process you want to do with it, you can do with it and the data is never, it's never lost. You just, <clears throat> you, hash the encryption, you hash the data at the start or you encrypt the data at the start and then you just move along with your life. And at the end, if you want some results, then you have to decrypt it or with your private key and you get to see the results. So it's never, and not never decrypted while you're doing any of the computations, and and how exactly this works is super complicated. I I truthfully don't completely understand how everything works, um, because it's already quite difficult to understand why certain encryption schemes are. Uh, deterministic or non-deterministic in nature and then you also have to figure out how to use these different types of super long strings to index certain data and then to it's quite complicated but yeah. um, the gist of it is that you just um, change some data into the encrypted format do some computations and then at the end you get a result and the, it's, the only thing is that it's just a gazillion times slower as some people would like to call it yeah. than doing encryption over non-encrypted data yeah and i would say like most of the things i've heard about uh whether it's somewhat homomorphic uh encryption or fully homomorphic encryption like really positive things have been said by multiple leaders in the in the privacy space about the security posture of it or like the uh yeah the the security surrounding this encryption type but that efficiency is just so bad right now that there's no real way to justify the use of that in any sort of real world product right now like yeah. your latency from like if you're if you're upset by the slow block times for something like ethereum or bitcoin then i could only imagine how frustrating it would be to also have to wait for computation uh through uh fully homomorphic encryption like it, you could be waiting weeks years i don't know uh it just depends on like the size of your computation i guess that you're trying to do as well 
right? Yeah, it, it's different. What what it's very dependent on your uh, consensus, like you're saying. Like for example, on Ethereum, um, it's probabilistic in nature, so you you have to produce an X amount of blocks to be probabilistically sure that the block your transaction was included in is not changing anymore. Uh, while on the Cosmos, for example, you have instant finality, so you have six you have six point five seconds to compute whatever was in the transaction, and mm-hmm. if it's not computed by sixty six percent of the validators after six point five seconds, then the block time starts to go down. Then the block just waits; it is computed. So there is no way you can introduce a system like homomorphic encryption in an a uh, consensus algorithm like that if it's not fast enough basically so right or, so for sure there will be alternatives to go about it but like if you're just focusing on the easy things that it will be quite difficult to have a fast consensus algorithm but uh, a slow transaction process yeah it's a fast finality concept that needs yeah. to align so if we take kind of a, a step pat a step back zoom out and look at this the the privacy space in general within crypto, right? We've got a bunch of projects that have garnered some mainstream adoption in a sense where it's like the names are becoming more household, so to speak. Like Monero is very popular name, Project Zcash. Secret is getting to the point where it's becoming much more well-known to people outside just the Cosmos ecosystem. And there's a bunch of other uh, types of technology um, or projects and technology that we can get into like mixers, um, you know, like off chain uh, computation platforms. But one of the things that I can't help but think about when looking at these are like some of the, some of the critical aspects of this technology um, and like what things are we willing to give up to get other things, right? so when I'm thinking about uh, this privacy tech and the projects that are leveraging it, I'm very um, interested in uh, three main aspects. One, the verifiability. It's like, how can we be sure that you actually did this thing um, and that you can I can uh, prove the correctness of whatever this computation is, the transaction, um, the security associated with the computation. Um, so like... How can I make sure that no one can break encryption, uh, break the encryption schemes that are used to be able to get access to my transactional or computational details? And then also the efficiency uh, of these computations and transactions. So um, so overall, the verifiability, the security and the efficiency of these various projects and the technology that they leverage, I think, are the most important in my mind. And I'm curious to hear both from uh, you, Kim, and Erdemann, like which parts of uh, which aspects of privacy technology do you think are most important right now? Um, I don't know if things are changing over time. You know, where it's like maybe at the uh, at the uh, onset of this privacy narrative, we're just focused on maximum security and verifiability. We'll get to the efficiency later. Now we're five, six, seven years down the road. We're still doing things uh, securely and we can verify it, but we're getting enough adoption to where we need to start increasing our efficiency, um, right? So maybe it's uh, a product of where these different projects are in their life, uh, like in their lifespan, 
where the overall uh, general crypto space is, but I'm curious to hear what you guys think are some of the most important aspects of this technology. Yeah, Erman, I'll let you go first, but I, I do have some some basic thoughts, but I'd like to hear your, your opinion. Yeah, it's, um, I guess there are different camps. I think that's the correct uh, assessment nowadays that some people want to go very fast uh, and do things as soon as possible and then uh, end up with a system which is maybe more trusted or less secure and others are not willing to take any compromises and say if i'm not doing fully homomorphic encryption on a proof of work network then what am i doing this is not crypto so yeah yeah i mean it's a it's a it's a scale where you have to say okay where do i come in it's similar to the privacy scale i guess where that there is no there is not i guess homomorphic encryption is full privacy but yeah. besides that it's like there is not really something like uh something that's 100 percent private something is never or almost never one spectrum, spectrum. Yeah. yeah it's a it's a spectrum of of like uh, how you want to tackle certain things and that those all have like different consequences and uh, different attack factors i mean I was reading about an attack factor which was shared by Guy Ziskind from Secret Labs, the founder mm -hmm. of Secret Network. He was talking about a heart split attack. Yep. And mm -hmm. I read about that as well. I mean, some of these things are so crazy. Basically, they direct listen to your CPU, so to your processor in your computer, and they are able to verify certain computation times of the, the several computations you are doing by listening to the, the like the knocks, the noises inside your CPU. Yeah. And then they may be able to locally verify that you did certain certain computations or whatever. Yeah. I mean holy that shit. goes so far as to say like okay what are we doing, you know? If that can break almost every encryption protocol, then are we ever safe? Right. I mean that's not where we're looking for, right? So you have exactly the same spectrum with privacy as I think you have the sector spectrum where you say, okay, we have uh, how fast is something, how secure is something, and how effective is something. I guess it's and that's that's kind of where I sit, and that that's really what I was gonna say is like I don't know if I could pick one because it's it's kind of this like and we talk about it all the time is it's this trade off like do we really need like do what do what we have now is it secure enough right is it do we trust it enough to use it so that it, we can have this trade-off of, you know, we don't have fully homomorphic uh, encryption, but we don't necessarily need that level of encryption. So why would we trade off the time, right? So maybe at a certain point you might say, hey, this the current encryption methods that work a little quicker, uh, faster finality, they're not actually, you know, you know going to stand up to the test. So now we need to go to this more encrypted, this more guaranteed I say that with heavy quotes, but this guaranteed encryption and and give up that trade-off of, okay, we will have to wait a certain amount of time because if we want this level of you know security and encryption, then we're going to have to give up this. So yeah. to me, it's like right now we're, we're finding that middle ground of how much security do we actually need and how much can we give while still maintaining this fast-moving environment that we expect when we're using any sort of application these days. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, talking about these different trade-offs that are present within making these different decisions to get you to your end goal. Um, I mean, I guess that 
you're you're analyzing different trade-offs along the entire way. Some of the other things I was thinking about when, uh, or that I guess other projects are having to think about when developing privacy-oriented uh, protocols or networks is like one: do they want to be permissionless or permissioned? You know, there's pros and cons to both of those, and the type of privacy that they can provide uh, changes a little bit based on how they do that. Um, you know, where permissionless, where you've got a more decentralized uh, network or protocol, um, anybody can interact with uh, with the project, uh, whether it's transacting, running a node, um, really doing doing whatever. Um, and then you've got permission chains where you have to get permission to interact with the protocol or run a node or do any sort of verification. And, uh, you know, they, they both offer pros and cons to, you know, the privacy posture uh, available for the end users. Um, and then same also with like, do uh, projects want to offer privacy by default or do we want to offer this opt-in privacy, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that that conversation right there, I think, is uh, one that could go on for hours and hours and hours, just because very philosophical in in nature with that type of question for sure. Yeah, yeah. you also have privacy versus anonymity. It's uh, yep. there. There are a lot of trade-offs. So. Yeah, yeah, there really are a lot of different layers to this. You have to kind of piece through as you're as you're designing protocols or any sort of privacy type, you know, method. It's it, there's just so many different things you have to consider along the way and consider the different trade-offs. And I think that's a big issue right now with a lot of people in, in crypto and Web3 is they don't have a great understanding of how these encryption methods work or all these different pieces. And they're trying to decide which protocol they think is right for them. So it's hard to make that decision without really understanding what the trade-offs are of each different protocol and what are they even trying to achieve as a protocol? Because that maybe, is different. Maybe we should create a blockchain trilemma but then a privacy trilemma graph for uh for house of shades and then have like every protocol listed in like what you say secure effective and fast and then yep. every every protocol listed in the triangle that's a yeah. great idea the same metric <laughs> but i i do want to i really want to talk about this difference between privacy by default and opt-in privacy because i think those are one of the main differentiators between projects at a surface level um, like end users that are using uh, the, the product, whether it's to, to interact with an application or if it's just to transact. Um, one of the few things that someone might actually recognize is whether they get this privacy by default or if it's opt-in. You know, if I'm using a particular uh, privacy project, I don't, I'm probably not going to understand what type of encryption they're using just from using the application. Right. right, but I will know if it's opt-in privacy versus private by default. I don't necessarily need to know how that happens, but the fact that it is, I have to opt into it, or I get this privacy by default. Um, and it seems like most projects are that provide some sort of opt-in privacy, which doesn't sit well with me personally. <laughs> uh, but so we know I'm, which side you're on. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> very much. So. I mean, I'm here in Secret Network, so obviously I'm a fan of privacy by default. Um, but there, there are some things that I, I feel like most people don't understand about some of the drawbacks for opt-in privacy. So I'm curious to hear um, hear from you, Erdman, about like what are some of the drawbacks 
with opt-in privacy and then like why some groups would choose opt-in privacy over privacy by default. I'm sure it's this trade-off of like security and speed and, uh, you know. I guess there are, there are two main categories where I would say it's important. I think there is a regulatory argument. So saying, okay, you can opt into privacy creates maybe more ways for a project to be listed or to have certain things just saying no 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 we only allow people to have privacy if they want to mm-hmm. and but it also creates a situation where um users are more easily basically shamed maybe for using the private option so let's say you're on ethereum and you decide to use tornado cash then there are literally exchanges which may not accept your wallet because you once interacted with tornado cash um, yep. which it's an it's a, it's a problem basically uh, for users of the chain that they may be implicated for something even though they didn't do anything and that comes from the fact that some of the information is public from which people infer that whoever does anything private is maybe a bad actor which is of course nonsense but it's um I think personally, it's a risk to opt in privacy solutions. It's an and, argument that is being used by governments already to yeah. say, hey, if you interact with this, there is some sort of uh, plausible argument that could be made that you are doing something illegal. Like, yeah. why why do you need to hide anything if you're not doing anything wrong? It's like, I, I hate that argument. But have you, have you yeah. ever have you ever drawn out cash from a machine? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, yeah, then you're a criminal, I'm yep. sure. <laughs> well, unless unless you're sharing that information with every single person yeah. who wants to see it at any time they ask, then yeah, you are a criminal in my eyes. I, yeah. I say no. that with, I hope everyone understands that is clearly sarcasm. Sorry, yeah. you want you want to come to my bank? No, you cannot have an account. I see oh, you have cash under your under your bed sheets. No, it's not like yeah. No, it, it creates problems. Uh, no, it creates problems for users. I think like the regulatory thing is nice for change, maybe saying, okay, hey, we only offer opt-in privacy so we can, I don't know, you can list us or whatever. Maybe nice for them, but for users, I think it's it's to their detriment. And then mm-hmm. the, se- the second thing about opt-in versus default privacy is that uh, opt-in privacy solutions are often a lot less secure than um privacy by default projects and that is off of course that's different for every solution as to why they are less secure but the general thing is that uh, uh privacy projects or maybe not privacy projects but anonymity projects so stuff like monero zcash where you say i transacted but nobody can exactly know what happened because you are construing your things with other people's mm-hmm. identities or whatever uh, this is all dependent on something called anonymity set. So if more people interact with the same application during the same time frame or whatever, then uh, the security of your private computation or your private transaction is higher. So if you interact with Tornado Cash and you send one Ethereum, just like 100 or 200 or 500 other people, then it's very hard for them to infer what other wallet is yours um but for 
but if you send 500 Ethereum, which only like five or six people did, then you have a very bad anonymity set and people could just say, okay, hey, it's him. Because I see after he interacted with uh, this DeFi application on that wallet, then he sent 500 Ethereum and then this 500 Ethereum interacted with the same DeFi application. So I'm quite sure it's the same person. Right. Um, and then, or for example, on, uh, on, on Zcash, where if you have 95 uh, percent of the transactions are public and only five percent are private then only a very few people every day are interacting with the private protocol so if you're yeah seeing another wallet that you're doing stuff with it then it easily gets you doxed basically yeah and that's the that um, idea of using like data points that you can infer from from these protocols to basically back into getting it you may not be able to 100 percent guarantee it's the person but you, yeah. you can get enough data to have a strong case to maybe work with authorities at that point to find out who you are or someone could just use that data to triangulate you know you to one place where you slipped up giving your email or a username so to, to your point these aren't necessarily privacy that in the way people think it is where it's more ob obfuscation you're obscuring the data to a way where it's hard to put back together but possible and that's yeah. that's the thing i like think a lot of people don't quite know or understand about some of these um pseudo privacy type applications that aren't actually offering full privacy it's the anonymity versus privacy mindset so am exactly. i uh, saying i did something else while i actually so, so am i saying i bought a donut while i actually bought a croissant or something yeah. or am i uh, uh am i literally going to a private store somewhere where nobody can see what i'm buying i guess that's the difference and yeah. um there are more protocols who follow under the anonymity set uh, protocol or like type project, but still have privacy by default. So for example, Monero has privacy by default. So whenever you transact on Monero, there's no choice. You are included in a ring signature with X amount of people and you will have stealth address and you will be using bulletproofs and their entire technology stack to make sure that your transaction is as secure as it can be. Because if your transaction uh, is not secure. So let's say you don't run your own full node and someone else runs your transaction and they save the data, then they know one trend, the, the, the truth basically for one transaction. And your transaction or your key may be used to sign for a different transaction because that's how ring signatures work. Like multiple people mm -hmm. sign the same transaction even though they are not actually the person initiating the transaction. So your public key may be linked to a transaction to someone who is uh, buying drugs or whatever, um, but you're not the person who's buying drugs, you're just one of the signers. And you cannot control whether you sign or not sign a transaction that's just randomized within the protocol. Got it. But if uh, it's not actually that you're signing the transaction, by the way, they just act like you did because no one, of course, can can sign a transaction for decoys, you without... Right? Yeah, it's just a decoy, basically, yeah. But um, like if you run a full node for uh, Monero, for example, and you're a wallet provider and you're saving all the data, then you might be able to have like six or seven transactions noted or six or seven public keys where you know almost everything that happened. And then if a ring signature comes by with... 12 signers and you know seven of these signers and you know their complete wallet history and it gets a lot easier to infer the other five yeah, uh, right. transactions so you opt into a system where your privacy is 
determined by how other people use the protocol. Yep. And Which I can see where there's a lot of risk there in trade-off, right? Right yeah. in that sentence, yep. what you're giving up. So. I, and in reality, Monero is very, very anonymous. Like it, it works quite well if you know how to use it, uh, but there are always, uh, yeah, I guess other things you have to think about. Because always vulnerability. We'll get to that at the end of the episode. We'll okay, we, we want to go back to that again. Then it's good. Yeah. Then I'll leave it for now. But there, there are other things there. So basically, if opt-in privacy, privacy by default, but in, in general, it's all the public, uh, <laughs> all the public information that is, uh, um, is inside the protocol makes it very, makes it easier to infer what happened in all the private transactions. So uh, there's just a trade-off there. And I'm not saying that private um, optional privacy cannot work. Um, right. There are, of course, people who are very interested in providing an optional privacy network for Bitcoin, maybe on the Lightning Network or whatever. And I'm, I'm sure there is a protocol that can enable it. But then you're working more towards like layer twos. Or, mm -hmm. right. uh, but not layer one just simply stating okay hey you, you can choose whether you want a private or a public transaction to me it seems like a bad idea but maybe that's just thinking about all the past projects that tried to implement it and failed there are yeah, probably right. better ways to go about it but uh, uh, then point one still stands where you're saying okay do i want the regulatory concerns of having to uh yeah, basically, users may be getting shamed upon of interacting with a certain application or and, and maybe you we'll could, talk about this. So I'll let you. Say, you could be shamed by your peers, whatever other people using it. But the reality is there are data analytics companies that are big enough, have valuable enough contracts and connections with various uh, governments across the world who have a vested interest in either breaking encryption uh, for these various privacy projects or just doing enough tracking of wallets, understanding how various mixers, these, uh, obfuscation, uh, pathways function so that, you know, they can get to a more true, like the, they can uncover whatever it is that they're trying to uncover. And so when we're talking about, you know, opt-in privacy versus privacy by default, you know, these, the implications of that on your anonymity size the, uh, or the an anonymity set size, uh, differences between privacy and anonymity. Like, I can't help but think about how some of these projects who are putting a higher priority on efficiency and less of priority on uh, like that default security um, are going to be some of the first people or first groups to kind of go down go down in a sense where it's like their security or their anonymity is no longer like uh, valid or it's not as valuable because there are people that with enough effort, whether that be through money, computation power, whatever, can track some of these things. Um, and I think Chainalysis is one of the biggest companies in the world right now focused on providing some of this data analytics to mm -hmm. groups like the U.S. government to be able to do things like breaking Monero's encryption uh, pathways or being able to, you know, track funds moving through Tornado Cash or these various mixers. Um, and so to me, knowing that this is going on, one makes me feel pretty good about where we're at in secret network, but two, it makes me like, 
worried about these other projects that are, they say they're trying to protect people and they could be on a very surface level. But at the end of the day, if there is ever a reason for group data analytics companies to come after these groups, whether it be at the request of a sovereign nation or if it's at the if it's due to, you know, some sort of black hat group forcing their hand to try and give them information or whatever the case may be, um, I can't help but think about uh, the impact that like very large data analytics companies are going to have on the security postures of these various privacy projects. Oh, and, there, and there's no doubt that governments are going to want to have access to the information. And we know for certain that the U.S. government will want it because the one thing that we know is that if people are making money, they want to tax it. So mm-hmm. oh, if yeah. there's these privacy protocols, they're going to want to really do whatever they can to make sure they're getting their cut. Um, yeah. So for me, that's kind of what drew me to Secret Network was that programmable privacy, but having privacy by default. Because to me, that was a, a trade off that I could accept was... This is private by default, but you have this option when needed to provide the information you need to provide. And to me, that's that is a trade off I'm willing to do because I'm not trying to hide anything per se from a government. Like I will pay my taxes on everything. That is something I would like to do and need to do, especially as someone who is a licensed CPA. Of course, I'm going to make sure I'm adhering to all these different laws, but I also want my privacy. I don't want to give away my account balance or my transactions or what I'm doing on the weekends in my DeFi platforms, right? Like that's stuff that should be only known by me and whoever I want to show that to. So yep. to your point though, it just kind of seems like they are kind of focusing on the wrong thing. You should be focusing on that general privacy um, from like the ground floor from default and then letting the user decide how much risk they're willing to take on in terms of, you know, withholding information from parties who need it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's just, um, it's easier to regulate as few instances or as few people or as few companies as possible, which is why governments always decide to move to, well, the network in this case, mm-hmm. or a company, because it's way easier to ask a company, hey, are all your people solvent or did they all pay their taxes then to say right. to every single person, hey, can you please file yeah. this document because I want to make sure you filed your taxes. Yeah. And I guess that is a, it's a it's a way they go about making sure they get their cuts or whatever and um uh, privacy protocols have to make sure they can somehow agree with that yeah. i just want to make sure that people understand that it's not that secret network is not a link to like chain analysis like it, it's quite or not easy but there are for sure ways to infer a lot of transactions on secret using chain analysis because um, we are not offering transactional privacy of the security that Monero does, for example. It's also not not something that Secret Network is interested in, really. Like, you can. If you want to, you, you can be very secure. You just have to think about it a little bit more. But chain analysis does offer certain, um, I guess, information to Bob. To, if you really want to, to see everything, you could do quite some chain analysis on Secret Network as well. And it's not that we're the only one who is providing uh, auditability. On Monero, you also have viewing keys. So you're just as uh, easily you can share your viewing key with your mm-hmm. tax auditor or whatever when you're transacting on Monero. But it's the 
I guess it's the combination or everything that you just have to think about. Okay, does this project deliver the full package? And I, I think it's indeed a very good good question to have. Do I want to be on a protocol which has privacy uh, by default or opt-in privacy? Do I only want to be anonymous? It is um, the truth be told that uh, regulations probably have a lot of impact on your investments as well. So uh, yeah. it's a choice you have to make. Yep. That's actually a great segue into a uh, question I have for you is like, what do you think the, uh, the impact of regulation on privacy uh, focused projects or specifically privacy uh, tokens, you know, like since 20, well, throughout 2019, 2020 and into 2021, we saw a lot of uh, countries either heavily countries and exchanges heavily regulating or just outright banning uh, privacy tokens. Um, I know South Korea and Japan both have fully banned privacy um, projects and then a bunch of different exchanges, most likely due to where they're located, like what jurisdiction they're in. But a lot of different exchanges have also prevented the trading of uh, tokens like Zcash and Monero. Um, and so I can't help but think about from the perspective of someone who work, works, interacts, and kind of at this point lives within, uh, you know, a privacy network. What what sort of implications to to those things happening have on other privacy projects like Secret Network? Um, you know. Yeah, it's it's a very complicated question. Of course, it's it's one we also very often get like. Uh, what is the relation between secret network and regulators? Yeah. I don't know. I think, I, think the, like, I don't really have an answer to, to that relation, for example, but I think some things which are important to distinguish between different networks is one is like supply auditability. Mm-hmm. So often you can audit the supply of a token. Um, so for example, uh, Monero, you can audit the supply and for uh, Dero, you can also do it. But as soon as they're listed on exchanges, you create a situation where this exchange, you don't know the wallet of this exchange. Mm-hmm. So they could, in theory, mm-hmm. mint out Monero out of thin air, or not really mint it, but just say on their platform, hey, we have Monero. Yep. Just give it to different users. Uh, and as soon as long as these users don't put it into their own wallet, like withdraw, there is, yeah, as long as they know, don't withdraw it, there is no way for the entire Monero community, I guess, to, to see if the supply that is there is actually like if the exchanges basically are selling nothing, or if they are selling something, right. Um, and this is actually a thing they, they did, like they, they organized an event where it was, we're all going to buy Monero on like a lot of different exchanges instead of using uh, atomic swaps, which is like Bitcoin and Monero, you can swap them mm-hmm. interchangeably or Ethereum, I think you can do it as well. We're going to buy an exchanges and then at a certain date, we're all gonna withdraw. And then we'll just see if they have enough Monero to be sold. <laughs> and it's, it seems like uh, they survived the event. Uh, yeah. It was very good for Monero's price, to be honest. If you were in, in it at the moment, it was maybe nice for you. But it's um, it. <clears throat> it's it's a it's actually like um, 
I think they're quite scared of that just institutions can just say they're they have like a deposit address. Some people deposit into it, but you cannot see how much Monero is deposited into the address. And you can also right. see how much is going out. So there's no way to verify if the exchange is selling air or selling Monero. Right, because so, they can always just reflect on their you know front end, like, oh yeah, look at all this Monero and it's priced at this. And look, and there's no way you can audit that without either seeing into their personal private systems that yeah. they're not going to let you get access to. So yeah, you're right. That's very so interesting. That, that, there have been some people who say uh, yeah, exchanges are just shorting Monero into the ground and we cannot see it. So that's why Monero's price is not going up. And like, of course, this is a bit of a tin tinfoil hat uh, ID, but still it's it's interesting that it's such a complex problem for them because they yeah there's no way to solve it basically they would be better off without exchanges maybe yeah so, what about what about dexes on secret network right so secret has a bridge between secret network and monero uh secret xmr is available on secret swap and i think also available on sienna are those supplies audible yeah you like, can see you can see how much uh, secret xmr tokens there are Okay. And uh, this uh, exactly amounts to the amount of XMR that's in the bridge contract address. Okay. Okay. So, so you know like, how much you know how much SXMR is on our chain, mm -hmm. or our chain on like Secret Network and our uh, chain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then uh, you're also able to, of course, you don't know who is exactly holding how many, how much Monero, but. Uh, you can see the total amount, and uh, the swaps are semi-private, so you can also figure out how much is in the pools, etc. So, yes, that's all that will like the complete okay. the complete package. And the chain, of course, cannot mint Monero out of thin air because then you would be able to see that in a smart contract somewhere that like it's randomly pushing out as XMR. So someone would be able to to yeah to find that loophole very easily. Yeah. Sure. Um, and then I guess why I was coming into this argument is because secret is actually it's actually public right so the, right. the yeah. latest and I thought, tokens. yeah that's something we should address is like that layer one is not necessarily what people think it's like that is yeah. a public yeah so it's some people see it as like a better argument they like i've seen a lot of comments on twitter which is simply says like the secret cash tag and then it says it's not private yeah and yeah i mean yeah they, they no they, one is correct. no one is saying yeah. that you're wrong uh, yeah right but but I so, think that is misunderstood. I think a lot of people might assume that is true, even though they could go on a block explorer and see it. I don't think they fully understand that, hey, that, that means that it's public, right? Yeah. So, no, like the private things on secret network are the secret tokens, but the yeah, supply right. of secret yeah, tokens is, is auditable. The, the wrapped are, secret tokens, yeah. Yeah, and they are smart contracts as well, so they cannot be minted out of thin air, basically. Like you, yeah. for example, the S secret contract, you can see how much secret is in the contract, and that is exactly the same amount as S secret that is out yeah. there because the contract is one to one, so there's no way to, yeah. Yeah, it would be very good, uh, get a very good hacker if you somehow manage to to flimsy that, but uh, no. <laughs> yeah, well, and that is something that's like you know people need to understand about the secret network is like there's two token standards one is a private standard that's the snip right and then there's this cosmosm that we see across you know these ibc protocols mainly in the cosmos ecosystem which make these cw20 tokens or whatever version they're on now but essentially those are the ones that are you know you'll see on osmosis right those are the ones that you can interact with are completely public but then below that in secret network is this snip standard which is the secret networks version of this token 
And that is the private side. That is where you can transact or at least have computational privacy uh, between these wrap tokens. And I think that is a little bit of a gap for people that that hasn't doesn't quite click right away is that, you know, there's yeah. a public and a private and you have to kind of pick that privacy um, in a way. It is. the So you have in the Cosmos ecosystem, you have coins and tokens. And coins are the native layer one tokens uh, or coins. it's a complicated name it, it's it's nice to delineate them in some way so. Yeah, yeah so you have coins which is like atom juno secret stars stuff like that and almost like they're like have, platforms that you can build on top of yeah and then you have tokens which is like neta raccoon shade uh alter stuff like that yeah and um how it works is that any basically C cw20s are just a representation of ERC-20s, but then within Cosmosm. Yep. And SNP-20s are a representation of Cosmosm tokens on Secret Network. But then they have private metadata fields and mm -hmm. a little bit of a different design, but it's not like super important. There are- Yeah, essentially they redid the, the Cosmosm that's being used in their own way, kind of customized certain things so that there could be private aspects yeah, to it. Basically, slap a private metadata field on it, and it becomes a SNP20. It's, of yeah. course- I imagine it's more nuanced to it, but yeah. I generally <laughs> agree that is what it's doing. Yeah, so the but so what happens is that if you bring Atom to the chain, then Atom gets wrapped into a SNP20. So if you use Atom on Osmosis, it's actually a native coin because IBC is native. So mm -hmm. Atom on Osmo is not a token, it's the native Atom coin. But if you use S atom, so secret atom on secret, then it's actually a step 20. So it's a token. Okay. Got it. Gotcha. So you're, uh, you have a representation of atom, not native version of it. So yes. you're using Okay. Well, you're bridging in the native version and then you're wrapping it to secret atom. Yeah. Um, Got it. But, and the same is for all the bridge tokens. So like uh, S Ethereum and whatever. But for example, Shade and Jekyll, they are, or Shade and Alter, they are native SNP 20s, I guess. But they're not, uh, not coins. Yeah, right, sure. because they're technically a layer two of secret, meaning yeah. well yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they are snip there are snip twenty tokens on the secret network. And there are for now there are no CW twenty tokens on secret network because yeah. IBC compatibility has not let not yet launched. So there is no Neta or Raccoon or uh, I think Ion is native, but like some other coins of the Cosmos yeah. ecosystem or sorry, tokens of the Cosmos ecosystem have not yet landed on secret network. Right. Yeah, but they could soon. <laughs> yeah, uh, as far as I know, it could be in the next couple of weeks. But I always like to add a little buffer. So let's say within a month. August is the is the, the date. Oh, it is Sweet. August. Okay. Sweet. Okay. So I think one of the best ways for us to wrap up this episode is to talk about some of the best practices for end users um, when interacting with any of these um, privacy tokens uh, or coins. So. You know, one of the things uh, you've highlighted that has stuck out to me, Erdemann, is there's a big difference between privacy and anonymity. And one of the, like, these best practices that end users um, can implement in their general interactions increase anonymity and not privacy, right? So can you repeat your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, these best practices like using a VPN, um, using very standard uh, uh, token amounts to send or coin amounts to send, um, 
running, let's say running a, if you're transacting Monero, running a full node versus uh, using someone else's node. These are all things that are increasing the, your anonymity when you're interacting with these projects, not necessarily increasing the privacy associated with it, right? I mean, they, they don't change anything about the protocol. It's just that yeah. it's there is less public information out there to infer what you did. So it, it, indeed, it, it's more about anonymity than about privacy. Although running a Monero full node is really about privacy. Like if you don't okay. do that, then... <laughs> Basically, if you use Monero and you don't run a full node, then don't use Monero. So are there any... are there? Is there anything that you would recommend individuals um, do or like include in their uh, in their list of practices that they're uh, that they're utilizing when interacting with these uh, privacy projects? Like, I assume that uh, you would advise everyone to be using VPNs whenever they're interacting with these projects. Is there anything else that would be useful and relatively easy for individuals to implement? I mean, it's very dependent on the network you are in. But I can, I think it makes the most sense to go over Monero and Secret, seeing as Zcash is not actually private, or like most of it is not. So I, I'd, yeah. I'd steer away from using that to be do private transactions, let's put it like that. And then uh, another network is Dero, but I'm not too familiar with it. So uh, I, I know what they're doing, but I'd rather not like uh, go over the best practices. And then besides that, you end up with like Tornado Cash. Okay, we can quickly go over Tornado Cash, Monero, and then Secret. I think that's yeah. it. So if you're using a mixer, so that's like something like Tornado Cash or I think on Juno, there's now Juno Juicer launching. Mm -hmm. and on Secret, we have Blackbox, uh, which is also a mixer type application. Is that um, mixers on public chains have public data, so they know how much balance you sent into this mixer. They also know which wallet interacted with this mixer. So, if you are trying to create a private wallet, so send like your Juno from one address to another, then one idea I would give you is use Secret instead, like bring it to Secret make a secret token and bring it to a new wallet and it's a lot easier but if you want to use like a mixer for example or you're on ethereum even though you're on ethereum i would suggest bridging in using <laughs> secret and then, but anyway uh you can use like tornado cash what you would do is you you, you send like you first you try to figure out um what transaction balance is used the most because the balances is known and your anonymity set is only shared amongst people who send exactly the same amount as you because exactly the same amount as you send is going to get end up in your different wallets and if only you and your other wallets are the two people who are um sending this amount of transactions then uh, this this balance yeah. then it's very easy to infer what is happening so mm -hmm. you have to make sure that I think for Tornado Cash, they have like figured out that everyone decides to use like one Ethereum. I've never used it, but it, probably something like that is happening. So I would like look, look at a block explorer and say, okay, mm -hmm. I'm using specifically this balance. And then when you interact with it, often the protocol decides when your other wallet gets funded. So it's like after 30 transactions have come in or something, then uh, your wallet gets funded. Um, so yeah, there's not really a lot to do, but the only thing I would suggest is from that moment onwards, you have two wallets. And uh, 
people know that amongst these 30 wallets, one of those is yours. So if you are going to use the wallets at the same time, using the same applications, holding the same tokens, then it's very easy for people to see what is happening. So you have to make sure that if you have a private wallet, which is doing public interactions, that the public interactions are either not the same, so that people don't think you're the same person. Like if you are always eating spaghetti and someone else always eats soup, there is no reason to think that you're the same person. And similar yeah. here, if they, if they, they one wallet only holds Adam and the other one holds like 10 other random shit, shit coins or whatever, then, um, then, then it's easy to understand. So I'm from, if you're from the European time zone, you're always interacting with the same wallets at eight o'clock in the morning, then mm. it's easy to, to infer that you're the same person. And yeah. Uh, okay, that, I guess that advice also moves over to Secret Network because mm -hmm. on Secret you also have public interactions. Like if I swap, if I always use Button Swap, for example, uh, the contract interactions are known and Button has like specific contracts. Uh, and I'm all, only buying Shade and Alter, and I make a new wallet, and I'm still only buying Shade and Alter. Then people can look at my two wallets and they say like, okay, this guy always interacts at exactly the same time with Button Swap, and nobody uses Button Swap or least not as his time of day so 100 sure he's the same person yeah and then um so i guess that's the thing like use uh, the same amount of balance when you're using like a public mixer or uh, like swaps or anything that's public and then uh, think about bridging bridging is often public so for example if you have an ibc wallet then if i ibc add them in i send it to my new new private wallet, uh, another wallet, like that they are disconnected now, but if I then exactly send, like bridge out exactly the same amount of Atom again, then people can just say, hey, there's an Atom bridge interaction here for like 97.898532 Atom, and exactly the same amount of Atom has come out of this wallet, but then four days later, well, I guess who this person is, I mean, yeah. And nobody's going to look for a transaction of 100 atom. But if you're doing this with like 5K or 10K atom, then it becomes very easy to, yeah, and, and to do stuff like this. Something to take out of everything you just said there is kind of like these protocols can offer you a, a sense of privacy or a certain level of privacy and security, but there's always other things that you could add on to increase that. And you should because these are not 100% guaranteed privacy, you know, statements like they 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 may claim to be but there is inherent risk in every single protocol that we can't account for so you want to be doing these extra steps if possible just to like we've said increase your your privacy and security posture um so that you can have the most secure and private you know network but you have to understand there's always trade-offs and always going to be some vulnerabilities yeah one of my no, uh, so, so i guess sorry go ahead I was going to say, one of my favorite quotes I read while preparing myself for this conversation was uh, from one of the Monero leads uh, stating that privacy is not a thing you achieve. It is a constant cat and mouse battle um, where it's like there is kind of like what we said earlier. Privacy is a spectrum like there is no real I've reached 100 percent privacy. I'm good now. Like I don't have to do anything. It's like there are always ways where you can leave traces of your activity it's just a matter of like how much do i want to make sure i'm watching over my back uh seeing you know who is watching me what steps am i leaving in the sand as i'm walking through um yeah. and so i i think the conversation that we've provided shows people that privacy is not this like 
you know, godly thing that uh, once you get it, you've got it forever. It's like, no, things are constantly changing. There are constantly people that are uh, fighting to prevent uh, or minimize your anonymity and minimize your privacy. And then um, there are people always, you know, constantly trying to exploit things for financial gain. Um, you know, there's a whole plethora of reasons why uh, privacy is always being not attacked, but like people are trying to reduce uh, privacy postures and anonymity. Yeah. And it's not even, it's not really privacy per se. It's more the right to share. Right? That, is how, that is how I see privacy. Privacy is not me hiding something from someone else, but it's me giving myself the ability to share what I want to share instead of controlling your own data. Instead of own... having to share everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yep. how I use secret network or how I use like some of these private applications is not to hide any assets or whatever. I'm just, um, so I'm personally not always taking the measure into account that I use two different VPNs to connect to my, to the different wallets because yeah. so my IP provider could see that I am using the same wallet. But what is happening is that if I get a giveaway by CryptoCam, then I able to receive my NFT or secret on a wallet, which is not linked to my main ledger, which is maybe showing mm -hmm. how much I own or which debt right. positions I took or who I sent the charity donation to or whatever. Yep. Like you, you opt into a transaction to only share a certain amount of details and I'm not waiting to share everything else. And that is mm -hmm. why I use a privacy protocol like secret network. And that is, I think how you should use it, but if you are willing to go way more beyond that and want to have like optimal privacy, then yes, you need a separate mm. IP address to connect to your separate wallets, preferably separate devices. Uh, you have to make sure that you're not doxing yourself using email, use I2P to I2P connected tunneling applications, or um, like there are a lot of things you have to think about. But if you're on that state, then just please use Monero, I guess that's right. my that's like my it. advice. Like, if I really want a private secret wallet, what I would do is I would reach out to Monero, send it to a new Monero wallet, send it from Monero again to secret, just in different amounts, and then. Right. Like, if you're Edward Snowden, you need that level of privacy. Sure, yeah. you might go all these methods and do all these different things. If you're someone like myself or, or you, from the sound of it, and you're just using this just because you like to protect who gets to view your data then yes, you don't really have to take a ton of these measures because you're more or less just trying to have a high level of privacy guarantee among people that you interact with. And that yeah. is something that Secret Network and many of these applications can provide at a pretty high level. And it's something that privacy is something you give out for life. So if you decide to use Ethereum right now and host your public history there, uh, then by definition, you are doxxed forever. Like it's not, right. you can never take that back. Yep. And on Secret, you can decide when and how much you want to give out to certain people. And mm -hmm. so it's not about me saying, okay, hey, I want to make sure that this specific interaction is private. But by, by doing that, I also make sure that every other transaction in my future history is private. Well, otherwise, I would have forever doxed myself to, to CryptoCam and you would have forever been able to tell me that? and do whatever. Yeah. No, so it's like... A, you don't trust me? People often think about it as in like one transaction or one thing. It's only it's only one time or it's only this. But no, it's by definition for that on blockchain, it's into perpetuity. So if you decide yep. to dox yourself now, it's forever. It's not just one time. And I guess that's... Uh, 
I guess that's something that not, not always links. But to come back to your question, what's the best advice? It's make sure you handle your the public interactions carefully. So using the same balances on public transactions between two wallets is not nice, time amounts, uh, stuff like that. And then in general, I would just suggest people to take their time. So use one wallet one day and just chill out, do something else the other day and don't like go full degen mode on six wallets at the same time because yeah, yeah. it's just uh, more complicated let's put yeah it <laughs> i think that's a it's a perfect place to end this uh conversation this has been so phenomenal i know i probably said this on most of our episodes that i love i love this conversation this might be my favorite uh episode but I truly like before we got to recording and I'm sure after we uh, in this episode, like my mind is going to be thinking about this continually. <laughs> um, and so I'm really glad you could join us today, Erdman, And uh, thank you, Kim, for co-hosting this with me. Um, we will we'll include some links to some of the uh, documentation we use to develop some of our knowledge prior to this and also there are some really good uh, secret network Monero bridging links that um, that I'm going to include in the description as well, just to give people some documentation on, um, you know, some of these best practices we were talking about right here at the end. But yeah, thank you everyone for listening in, and uh, we will catch you guys next time. See ya. Hey everybody, thanks for listening, and thank you to Erdeman for joining us on the House of Shade podcast. Make sure to check out the links in the description below to learn more about privacy, encryption, or the secret network. And please help support the House of Shade in our mission by liking the video and hitting that subscribe button. Thanks, and see you all next time.